Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilded Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Thomas Thurston, and today I'm with Connor Williams, who is a graduate student here at Yale University. Uh, Connor uh, did his undergraduate studies at Middlebury College and then went on to Dartmouth College, where he received an MA in Globalization Studies uh, and wrote his thesis on diasporic and international influences upon Frederick Douglass's political vision and thought towards the end of Douglass's life. Uh, he's here at Yale and pursuing uh, his, uh, most of his work is in fact on Frederick Douglass, but today we're going to be talking about a project he's been working on with the center based on work that he's been doing in manuscripts and archives. It's a project called Voices from the Archives that he's doing in conjunction with Daniel Vieira, who is the center's media project manager, and it's a collection of documents from the archives that we're developing as teaching resources for middle and high school teachers, as well as others. Connor, it's really great to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. So tell me, Connor, how did you get interested in the study of, of slavery and, uh, and kind of the current work that you're doing now? Yeah. Uh, it's a bit interesting. I always, I, I should say that in between my undergrad and coming here to Yale, I spent six years teaching in high schools in Indiana and Vermont. And I always knew I wanted to be a teacher, but I actually started out thinking that the 20th century was much more the place where I wanted to study. It's where all the action was uh, to my, my young college mind. But I, as I was approaching teaching, I was speaking to my, my grandfather one day, actually, and uh, he's asking me about what I was studying in school. I said Civil War, American slavery. And he just kind of let drop that growing up in Massachusetts in the 1920s, uh, he had known many former slaves. Hmm. Uh, people had been enslaved. And my grandfather was a bit older. He lived an extra generation, born in 1913, uh, passed away in 2012. But what that actually meant was that he grew up knowing formerly enslaved people, and he was able to, to vote for Barack Obama in 2008. And that just brought home to me in a weird, in a strange way that you don't often find textbooks just how truly relevant the history right. of how American, close we are yeah American yeah. slavery continues to be today and, and so that with my desire to teach kind of skewed me a bit earlier into the 19th century and when I was teaching I kind of realized the importance of primary source documents especially to get students to understand something that's out of their cultural memory or their, their contemporary memory. And so I kind of, even as a teacher, went on a great search for primary source documents whenever I could find them, and that continued here at Yale. Sure. So uh, tell me a little about uh, the work that you're doing uh, as a researcher for uh, uh, Sterling Memorial Library's manuscripts and archives. Yeah. The project really began just on, we don't even call it a hunch, in that the, the directors of the archives realized they had a tremendous amount of material on American slavery sure. and tremendous collections, papers of, of individuals from the past who likely had something to do with American slavery, but that because of the way the archives worked had never really been gone through in a systematic way. So they hired me in 2015 to start looking through these and, and finding what there is. One of the great ironies uh, of archives is that there's these tremendous stores of information and there's really for the study of American slavery 
uh, only a few dozen great archives in this country. Most of the Ivies, some state state museums, uh, the Schomburg Center in New York, certainly. But uh-huh. these, in, in a sense, these archives have a wealth of information, almost too much for any one person to look at in the course of researching a project. So my project, in essence, was just to read and see what I could discover. And my, my first place that I looked were the papers of U.B. Phillips, Ulrich uh, Bunnell Phillips, a historian of the early part of the 20th century who who taught at Yale at the end of his life, who most famously wrote a, a book called American Negro Slavery in 1918, which he essentially, using incredible amount of archival evidence, uh, came to incredibly what we would now consider wrong conclusions, that American slavery was a benevolent institution, it was a civilizing right. force uh, for the enslaved, and that the only problem, as he saw with American slavery, is that uh, no enslaved people ever, quote, graduated from this, the, right. this school of, of learning. The Civil War came and kind of disrupted the natural kind of way of thinking. This is the Dunn. The Dun- the, yeah, the, the Dunning School. Yeah. He, he was one of the students kind of trained out of that Dunning School. Uh, William Dunning, a, a historian at Columbia back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, who led a white supremacist, lost cause view of slavery and led it so successfully that essentially it came to dominate the national consciousness until the 1950s when Kenneth Stamp sure, started right. looking at yeah. slavery in a different way. And the other thing about U.B. Phillips, I guess to his credit, if we might say, is that he was one of the first modern historians that we know. So whereas other historians would have just read lengthy monographs published by older historians and kind of rewritten them in their own fashion to their own beliefs, Phillips actually went to great archival research. He grounded his his findings in evidence, and he actually went all throughout the South to different archives, courthouses, families, finding whatever documents he could. And at that time, these were still relatively fresh documents. So he amassed a great personal archive throughout his lifetime that he used to write his books. And when he passed, he was teaching at Yale, and, and Yale Manuscripts and Archives acquired all of his papers. So there's currently 47 boxes of his varied papers from primary sources, uh, like which what I'm looking at, to his research notes for his books, to manuscripts, to photographs. To, the whole life of a historian essentially is in, in the boxes. So, uh, I mean, I think it's very interesting that, uh, as you say, he's in some ways working from original documents and uh, in some cases the same documents that that you're looking through, but coming to such uh, very different conclusions. Uh, How do you, I mean, what is it about, why is it that, that that one archive will lead you in one direction and the same archive will lead you in, in another? Yeah, it's been in, in some ways an incredibly humbling project as a, a a budding historian because it makes you realize how the the times we live in our cultural assumptions are so built into what we understand about the past. And indeed that Phillips and I are looking at the same sources, which to his credit he amassed, uh, and coming to vastly different conclusions is it makes you reflect on the nature of, of history. I think in this case there there are a few things that kind of in in a sense helped us to, to look at these sources differently. Not only the, the great work on American slavery that was done in the aftermath of the civil rights movement in sure. the 1960s, but also uh, the, the, the cultural turn, as we call it in, in history, that happened in the late 80s, early 90s, and people started examining really the, the cultural foundations of different historical events. And they said the politics matter, sure, the, the social aspects matter, the economics matter, but the culture, what people are living in matters. And that's kind of what I've been trying to do a lot with my findings is to try as best I can to, to recreate 
what the culture of American slavery was like, what assumptions Americans carried around with them every day as they lived in a world where four million eventually of their peers were enslaved? Well, I mean, to the manuscript and archives credit, uh, they're really undergoing a, a, a great initiative to make this archive, the Phillips archive, more accessible through the work that you're doing and identifying things. But, but that was, of course, one of the reasons that we were very interested in your project, because you really are uncovering fascinating archives that, that tell uh, very intimate stories of, of slavery. And, uh, and it's a shame that they're first trapped in the archives and secondly, generally used uh, simply by professional historians. So it's been fantastic working with you and pulling out some of these stories that you've identified uh, so that we can share them with a broader audience. And with that, I'd like to uh, ask you, so tell a little about how uh, you conceived of organizing the uh, documents that, that you've felt have been useful for teaching and understanding. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's an interesting question because this project inherently almost needed organization. Most of where I drew these documents from were what's called the the pamphlets, bonds, and bills collection of the UB Phillips papers. And essentially, that's where the archivist back in the 1930s put all the random sources he didn't have any other organizing logic for. So uh, there are these folders just fill of things, everything from a, a random receipt for four gallons of whiskey to a promissory note agreeing to pay somebody $12 by next October to these incredibly uh, poignant and and evocative documents concerning American slavery. So as I read and kind of had this increasing list, I tried to look for, for basic themes that emerged from them. And because these documents aren't broad collections, we only have three or four sources in right. some cases. In some cases, just one one document to speak to a person's life or a person's death. There needed to be some kind of organizing logic. So what I realized early on is that all of these collections were essentially dealing with some kind of deep, bitter, almost violent irony of American slavery, that whether it was the, a, a enslaved person's standing in the legal system, their ability to to be a witness but not to, to be a plaintiff, right. their ability to be a... Uh, a, a convict or a criminal, but not to be acquitted or a savior. That 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 was a, a big issue that was running throughout this. So so the first kind of collection I came up with was we eventually called trials of the enslaved. Right. Moments where through the court process and, and legal documents, uh, the names of enslaved, their stories appear just ever so briefly uh, in the in the archive. Yes. Yeah. These are likely some of the only records uh, we're going to uncover about these these individuals. Yeah. It's it's one of the again the I guess not to be too dramatic, but the you might call it the, the cruelties of of the archive or the past is that we know so much about land rights and who bought land and and when. We know from census the numbers of people living right. in these places. We can trace families, especially white heads of household, as they travel throughout the past, but really they're, they're enslaved or are, are all too often only there in a sense almost accidentally when when something that they did or were involved in became worthy of, of recording down in the eyes of the 19th century uh, recorder. Right. So. This is uh, kind of a perfect example of, of kind of 
you know, who whose archive is this? This is kind of yeah. this is definitely these papers are from the slaveholder, uh, and they usually in these court cases you can see uh, that it's the enslaved who are kind of the uh, the subject of of scrutiny and really have very little voice except for what they what kind of slips out. Uh, so, and a lot of people would say, well, that kind of compromises the whole uh, task. But uh, I think you find uh, really uh, interesting ways to read through that. Yeah. Oh, certainly. And I think in a sense, it, it comes down to the, the fact that unless you have been enslaved in your lifetime, which thankfully uh, I have not, and, and hopefully uh, fewer and fewer people as we go forward in time will ever experience that, the experience of slavery is in a sense kind of unknowable, and certainly the experience of 19th century enslaved African Americans is in that sense unknowable. So we can we, we are starting our project inherently understanding that we're trying to approximate, we're trying to get as close as we can from the documents left behind. But at no point would ever try and say that this is the definitive account or this is the, the only possible way that an enslaved person would have interpreted their their world. Um, and and so when we look at these documents, especially these these traces left behind, we're intentionally using that ambiguity to to explain the the uncertainties and the violences of slavery, essentially, that that there there's no way to ever fully know what's going on, but through our, our use of reading societal notes, cultural hints that come out of the document, we can make some assumptions. And we also can sometimes say we, we absolutely don't know how this ended. It could have ended any of these ten ways, and let's consider that. If it ended this way, how would that have impacted our knowledge of the past if it ended this way? So there's that uncertainty gives you a lot of ability to really uh, dig deep into these documents and, and think about the possibilities they evoke. Right, and I think the uncertainty is in the fragmentary nature of the archive is uh, maybe an object lesson for for students who are looking at this to understand that history, this is how history is often written, is based on on frag- fragments, that yeah. what we have that survives. Now, no, just to kind of uh, take one example, in Trials of the Enslaved, the first story that uh, that you deal with is uh, is called Jude, uh, which is uh, about a trial, I guess, in Wilkes County, Georgia, in the end of the 18th century. Could you say a little about uh, the incident in question and the documents that that we have to kind of inform us about this? Yeah. So this is a case where we have some what you might call facts, objective facts, if we trust the documents to be authentic, which I do, and then a, a lot of speculation. So what, what we do know is that in Wilkes County, Georgia, which is a small town in, in northeastern Georgia and would eventually become the, the cotton belt of the Deep South, it, on New Year's Eve 1786, people were called to the house of John Mills, uh, a landowner and a plantation uh, entrepreneur. And his infant son had died uh, the night before, and it came out that they that they determined that Jude, his slave, the nurse of this child, right. had been responsible. At some point, they obtained a confession from Jude that we have no document with her, her name on it. We only have secondhand accounting of it, that she had, in fact, administered a, a vial of poison to the child and that it had died within 10 hours. It's impossible to know exactly what really happened. It seems, given the age of the child and, and the sudden death, that 
something like maybe SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, or something like that may have been the, right. the case. But what we do know is that Jude was the next day, uh, there was an inquisition of murder by 10 of the, the lawful and, and just citizens of, of the country, which seemed to have been really just whatever white men were nearby at the time. Right. They, they get there quickly. And they determined that she was guilty. She had confessed. Uh, that That's the first document we have is this inquisition of murder, accounting these details. The next document we have is a simple note telling the, the jailer of the county to hold her, hold Jude in the jail until her fate is determined. That's signed by a justice of the peace, who's also an interesting gentleman. He adjusted the peace today comes a certain weight. Back then, it seemed to have been whoever was willing to take the job wow. on his his spelling, his style, very problematic for what we'd consider to be a competent public servant. And then we have two more documents. One is a very stark, just simple half of sheet of paper, which has the, the guilty verdict on one hand of a jury, ah. and then the sentence of Jude, which is to be taken back to the jail until the next Friday, at which point she was taken to a place of execution and hanged, and then her body burnt to ashes, uh, which is we might talk about in, in a moment. Right. And then the last document we have is a very interesting document that I had to reread a few times before I could realize what was going on, in part because it's difficult to read. But it, it's another jury statement, another inquisition, and it's uh -huh. signed by seven local women, presumably white women. And mm -hmm. they inspected Jude's body to make sure she was not with child. She was not pregnant before they executed her. And that those are the four documents we have, all kind of this bundle to right. to tell us the life of Jude. They're all handwritten and in many ways they're they're as unofficial and and unlegal as we would hope them to be right. for, for a murder trial and a right. death sentence. This is I, I'm not sure is this kind of the frontier at this time? Uh sparsely populated, uh it's well, Wilkes County never became a, a densely populated place, and even to this day, I believe it has about five thousand people uh -huh. in it. it. It was not that much of a frontier in, in the sense that Georgia had been one of the colonies, sure. albeit a buffer colony against the Spanish. But it was certainly the beginning of a plantation society. That right. the cotton gin is a few years away still. In fact, I think it's interesting. Excuse me. Seventeen eighty-seven is the same year that the the Constitutional Convention happens in Philadelphia. Right. So this is, in a sense, really the, the birth of the, the U.S. Uh, nation in a second form after the Arnold's Confederation fail. And, but in the middle of Georgia, we have this this sense of people trying to scrap a, a trial together, almost by by some degree of tradition, some degree of uh, of duty to the law, whatever that means. But right. they're also very much almost creating the law. And I found it interesting that. The the jurors who four of them are, are literate who who sign they make their mark on the documents but they all have this little seal next to their names right which is essentially just uh, what we call the little cloud a child might draw with just squiggly lines but they thought it was important for each man to fix his seal so you have these men kind of drawing squiggly shapes to 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 make this a legal official document right yeah, yeah. Uh, that yeah that struck me too as uh, being kind of uh, just kind of improvised in a way these uh, these legal man manuscripts and we have um, so the, these four documents they uh, in dating there's just a, a matter of a couple of days between the the four documents uh, three weeks total the, okay. the first document we have is is New Year's 
Eve, New Year's Day, and then the, the January 19th is the last document of that year. So within three weeks, Jude had been con- confessed or, or been convicted, uh, sentenced to death, and we assume executed. Right. And although we have a- actually no evidence in this collection of documents that she even was executed. I mean, it's likely she was, clearly. But but we don't have anything after her execution. Now, you'd mentioned that in uh, in the um, one document, they said that her body would be burned after uh, execution. And uh, why why is that? Is that a common uh, common sentence? It, It actually is not. And there's the sense we get is one of twofold. The first is that in certain Christian Christian traditions of that time, resurrection for the, the life after required a, a body, which is why the burial rites are so important in, in that Christian faith. And so that by by burning Jude, they were not only depriving her of her, her life on earth, but also any chance of an afterlife by, by giving her a, a unchristian burial. And the other possibility is some degree of a heritage of witchcraft traditions coming over where you needed to burn a, a witch. I have to say that's more speculation at this point. Right. But again, that's the, a sense of the questions that you kind of get from these documents. And you can you could ask any student reading these, what are the questions you don't know? And, and we go back to the, the confession. Who, How was she interviewed? Were there 10 men in a room all shouting at her? Were she locked up? Was there threats? We don't know. How did she? How was she transported to the jail? Who were these men who were called? We know where they lived generally from census records. We we know some of them were siblings of each other through last names, but who were they? What? How did they conceive their duty as they were called hastily to the house of John Mills on New Year's Day? We, you know, what what was Jude's experience in the prison like when yeah. those women came to examine her? These are the only time that white women, for that matter are allowed to enter into the legal record as examiners to make sure she's not pregnant. But what was what was that interaction right. like? In a sense, their Jude's potential to be bearing life is the only thing that could have saved her, her or a stay execution at least. And at the same time, it was to, to give the, the white people a clear conscience that they weren't going to be taking an innocent life. And had June been pregnant, uh, the what would have happened to that child as slaves, presumably, so it would have been inherited by John Mills, but but who would have cared for it? We can answer some of these questions by proximity, by studying other sources. Right. But ultimately, I, I think that those are the questions that having students ask, even if they can't answer them, it gives them the, just a sense of what this culture was like, where these, these acts could take place, and people could very carefully record them, uh, thinking they were doing a great service to, to law and civic justice. Yeah, and this, I mean, really speaks to the question that I raised earlier about this sense of that that these documents are, are really capture Jude at a moment where her her voice is literally being taken from her that she's under uh, as her, her whole life that at this moment she's under complete uh, and and utter control by. Uh, her slave owner, her her slave master, and the entire community, and so, you know, is there any way of reading into these documents through the cracks, uh, through what's left out, uh, any notion of of Jude and her own agency and and anything about her? I think it's it's interesting that that Jude as a a person, we can see 
some small things going through. We we know that as the the child's nurse, she had some degree of proximity to the the life of the plantation mm-hmm. that she was being brought into the house, as it were. We know that she presumably had some kind of favored status to become a, a nursemaid to a child in, in the first place, or at least some kind of likely. If this is a, a the, the size of plantation we understand it to have been that that she had some degree of of trust with the John Mills's sure. family. And it also raises an, an interesting question that I think we we assume for several reasons that that John Mill that Jude was was innocent of this crime, but if she did in fact do it as she said, if she reached uh. a point in her in her life where she thought that whether it's because her own reproductive rights are being taken away from her that she was being forced to to nurse, you know, a child, right. that she felt that it was better to to murder this child, then that raises all other kinds of questions about what her, her life had, had been. So we, we know that she had been a mother at some point right. to have the, the, the process of of lactation, frankly. And yeah. and, and we right. we know right. that her her children, whoever they were, they don't enter into the case, they don't enter into the right. the record. Right. So presumably that that they were left behind when she was if she was Executed. Right, and and the the uh, dead child's uh, father, John Mills, yeah. is of course in the record, but there's nothing that's really said of the child's mother. We don't even know if exactly. she's alive. Yeah, we exactly. We have no idea where, what Mrs. Mills thought of uh, what was going on, how how she conceived, what her grief was like. Right, and it's it really is a case where we have to try and read all these stories through what uh, a dozen or a dozen and a half white men thought was the appropriate record to read right. down. Well, in the on online in the on the website, uh, we have both uh, facsimile uh, uh, copies of the manuscripts themselves uh, in all their glory, uh, but also uh, for good reason transcripts because they're, as you were saying, incredibly difficult to kind of read through. Uh, I'm sure uh, it <laughs> costs you some a lot of effort to to get uh, a ha- the hang of yeah. the writing in these. I'll just say that Adobe PDF Reader has a 800, 800 times uh, magnifying or that's, that's <laughs> that a, a valuable tool, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, and it is very nice to have uh, both a transcript. Uh, it's, I think it's important for students to be able to look at a document like that. They don't get an opportunity to, to do that, especially one that's so homespun in a way, as you said, with the, the seals kind of drawn in like little curly clouds. Uh, uh, but then again, it's very nice to have uh, the uh, transcript available as well. Um, but as a former teacher, how uh, how would you imagine uh, them being used uh, in the classroom? Yeah, I think that, and this goes back to what I said earlier in the interview, when when I started teaching history, I, re- I realized, for my style at least, that primary sources were, were, were key at having students read, interpret. So I, even back then, I was making these primary source collections. I collected 70 poems, scraps of, of literature, and we yeah. have my students read them. I, I think that the, the, what these documents are interesting for is they, they speak to such a broad range uh, of issues that they could be used in many different ways and many different levels. I could see a document like this being used even from kind of that, that fifth grade uh, introduction to U.S. history that happens in a lot of school systems to a, a seminar in college, a freshman seminar, sure. certainly. I, I think that What's most important is to 
have the students ask the questions and and to have them investigate. So we're trying to give background, as it as it were, to these issues, help teachers who are not, you know, students of, of American slavery, especially right. in in South or Northeastern Georgia in 1786. Right. The information, the background they would need, but then really have students read and pose the questions uh, and have them. If you have say three classes to work on this, have a class where perhaps they get into a think pair share and they really discuss. Well, what do I not know about this? What do right. I want to know more of? Right. What do we know? What do yeah. we? What What don't we know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was inter- discussing this with a group of teachers a few weeks ago, and one of the teachers was an English teacher, and the, it was incredibly, in a sense, liberating. We history students are so tied to our facts and our footnotes, but this teacher just asked. 20 questions in the space of a minute. And yeah. and some of them were a bit uh, far-fetched, you might say, for historical study. But if you try to look at the culture of slavery and, and how this worked, then it, they're all important questions. So right. I, I would say certainly having students ask the questions, get 20 of them from the blackboard, then talk about them. Which ones sort these? Which ones can we solve? Which ones can't we solve? Which ones might we solve? Right. And, and that's kind of a great way to get students thinking about this. Ultimately, I think that the other way it helps is that in a sense, slavery has come to be defined by a few what you might call sociological works that are very important and very good works, such as Frederick Douglass's first autobiography um, or, or now 12 Years a Slave. Right. Very important works, but at the same time, works that have become so representative that slavery is always one young black ma- man teaching himself how to write, escaping there on the eastern shore and writing his story down, or it's always a man unjustly kidnapped from the North and brought into right. uh, the, the Deep South right. for 12 years. And that these sources speak to the the, the more, and in some cases, I don't want to say less exceptional because that's doing an injustice to the people who live sure. these lives, but but the the stories from American slavery that weren't written down and published in the, 19, in the 18th, 19th century, excuse me, right. the 1840s and 1850s, and instead, the, the stories that, in some cases, are more typical of, of what right. everyday life under enslavement could be until some extraordinary circumstances, such as Jude's, made that life atypical. Right. And, and, and how varied as well. And I think one of the things that uh, is fascinating about uh, the Phillips archive and, and the scraps that you've pulled out is that they're from all, all over the the. Uh, uh, the slaveholding United States, as and and throughout. Uh, uh, I mean, what's what's the earliest uh, uh, document that that we're working with in this in this collection? In this collection, the earliest document goes back to the the 1770s. There are a few of those other as the kind of thematic organizations, uh-huh. and one of them that I found several times is uh, actually in a different archive, but same issues right. of. African Americans petitioning the state of New York in the wake of the Revolutionary War for their freedom, and these are are people who were freed uh, before the war by their their British owners, and then during the chaos of the Revolutionary War, they're actually re-enslaved by American patriots, right, if you call yeah. them that, and so it, it's it's using the the laws at, at stake in some advocacy groups such as the New York Manumission Society to try to prove that they had been freed and then in a sense betrayed by the revolution, which is what we called that group. Though the, the archive, just briefly, goes all the way back. There, there's a, a copies of a 1702 book, 
which essentially is a guide to plantation slavery. And it, it was designed for British men of means who wanted to come to the colonies and start a, sla- a plantation and essentially telling them how many, the, the numbers of, of enslaved people you would need, what proportion they should be in, what land you want for what. And, and that was a document which is incredible for the, the coldness of it. It was it was written the same way you might talk about assembling a, a cabinet or something, sure. only for enslaving people. Right. Uh, but we also go right up to the, the eve of the Civil War. One of the other documents in the Trials of the Enslaved uh, references uh, a man named Peter who was living in Tidewater, Virginia, so very old, established Virginia. And he had been rented out uh, as a factory worker by his owner to a local iron mill. And at some point in 1856, he, he died suddenly while at work. Interestingly, his white co-workers started spreading rumors that it was due to mistreatment that he died. He had been beaten so so savagely that, that he essentially died, uh-huh. which almost speaks to some early labor management struggles. Right. They're using it as, using a, it as a, a charge against uh, yeah. their manager. Exactly. But what's interesting in this case, well, many things are interesting, but Peter died suddenly. And as these rumors spread, the, the managers decided they needed to, to quell these, these issues. So they actually, about three weeks after Peter died, got together a, a party of six respected white men of the area. One of them was, was a doctor of some sort. And they exhumed Peter's corpse, which was hmm. a bit of a incredibly grisly uh, affair. And by looking at Peter's lungs, they claimed, even though they're very badly decomposed, which is a line from from the document that emerged from this, they, they claimed they could prove he had some kind of uh, defective lung condition, which which caused him to die suddenly, that, that it, there was not a single lash mark on his back, they claimed, hmm. uh, and that whatever, whether he had been in the factory or, or the field or at home, he would have, it was his time uh, to, to die. Right, right. What's interesting to, with that is that they actually, they, they published those findings in a circular letter. So they hired somebody to, to set it in, in print, and then they dashed off presumably many copies of this and sent them all around the community saying that here is, quote, scientific evidence, quote, that the iron works is a, is a fine place to work, that there's right. no right. detrimental. And obviously, we assume Peter had some degree of family. No one ever we were aware of asked his family if they could exhume him. Right. You know, e- even in death, Peter's body was not his own or even his, his family's. Yeah, so. absolutely. And that I think also you go from the, as we said, the, the homespun nature of Jude's trial in 1787 yeah. to the very modern mass printed, circulate distributed nature of, of Peter's death in 1856, at the same time, a lot of those same themes are still present, the, the lack of agency right. and, and the desire by the, quote, good white men of the county to to demonstrate that they are doing the, the most rational, logical, scientific, or legal thing at the moment. Right. And I think that also speaks to one of the real advantages of this collection is that it shows uh, the diversity and experience uh, that uh, slavery contains where the, in a way that a textbook, I think, is unable to really do sufficiently. And one of the challenges that we have moving forward is that although we don't want to kind of exhaustively explain every document and every circumstance, they do demand a little context in order to kind of make sense and to drive that drive home that, that point. Oh, certainly, yeah. And I think that, well, first, just to, with the other, to speak of the breadth of these these collections. The other two broad themes I've kind of identified is, is one called What Did Freedom Mean, where I kept on finding mm-hmm. documents about 
formerly enslaved people who had managed freedom through emancipation or manumission or through emancipation in some cases or through buying their own freedom. But because of the the black codes and the laws of the time, they were unable to have full rights. So these are people who had then in turn bought their mother, bought their child, the sense to free them, but they realized that were they to die or have any other issue, that the law would put those people back in enslavement. So th- these are stories of freed people now trying to 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 find a way to negotiate this this slave culture to make it work for them. And then the last is called Plantation Life and Lists, where we look at things from uh, provisioning orders to uh, estate, estate summaries when people die to uh, estate evaluations, essentially. And we have all these lists that really just have names and numbers on them, but asking what can we learn about the issues of slavery from these lists and this, this big view, what it means somebody gave two pairs of pants to all of his enslaved men every April, or what does it mean that yeah. that people were aware when they were evaluating an estate that they that there were family names and they, they grouped people by family rather than by, by huh. age or, or group mm-hmm. and how does that work? But the so I think it's it's a very evocative collection that, that hopefully speaks to a lot of broad issues right. through these specific stories. And that's the other thing is is what people need to, to know. I think that it's we would love to to have a way to get people to get feedback, but certainly Tidewater, Virginia in eighteen fifty six is is different from northeastern Georgia right. in 1786. Uh, and so it, it's looking in a sense at those regional particularities, but also the the broader themes that really do seem to run across many different communities of, of enslaved people. Well, and I do hope that it, uh, it gives students an opportunity to see a little about uh, what it is to do history uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and the sort of challenges uh, that are that we're all faced with when when we're working in the archives and to make those uh, archives truly available yeah and that's again why I think that if using these sources to teach having the the students encounter them with as little priming as possible is a really important thing planning a lecture I might start with a brief summary of, of Jude's case and then speak to the questions it evokes for me. But, but if, if teaching, I think it's important for students to say, okay, this is all I have. It's 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 this facsimile right. image. And I need to figure out what I can tell from this, what I can learn from it, what questions it asks me, how I can answer those questions. Because it really is the important work of historian. And right. that's why even in, in trying to transcribe, we made sure to keep all of the capitalizations or misspellings accurate to have people think, okay, what was going into these documents when they were being being created and, and how does that impact our understanding of them? Right. And I think one of one of the uh, other teachers in, in our, our focus uh, group a couple weeks ago was pointing to how valuable they were for in, inquiry-based learning that, 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 that he wanted to see yeah. students asking questions even if there weren't uh, pat answers to those, and I think that's yeah. important as well. And yeah, definitely. And the last thing that I think, well, not last thing, but which manuscripts and archives was very kind in doing when they were scanning these, they actually scanned the entire folders for all these documents. So we're hoping to to one day be able to show people the entire folders. Now, disclosure: a lot of those folders are, are rather boring, if you will. They really are just, I'll I'll, I'll pay you back eighteen dollars by yeah. by November, or you know, a receipt for for five pounds of bacon, but in a sense, it also speaks in, in in a broader sense to painting the entire lives surrounding 
these incidents and not just all the mundane details yeah, the mundane, that are exactly. circling around this uh, tragic event. Yeah. And having students even just look through those, especially if you're in a class where the historical craft is being taught and, and, and you have time to devote to it, having a student look through a, doc, a folder and say, okay, how do we make sense of this? How do we separate these documents out is a very important tool as well. So uh, for uh, people that are interested in this sort of uh, project, can you recommend uh, uh, any any resources? That's why I always ask this question. It's a little hard for this, but uh, other maybe what's happening at manuscripts and archives or other places that people might be uh, uh, excited or interested in learning about. Yeah, the I think that manuscripts and archives is increasingly doing a, a lot to try and put these. Uh, sources online and get other collections scanned as well. The Library of Congress has been doing a, a lot of really important work in getting their collections, which sure. they deem to be of of most uh, historical relevance online. So as a Frederick Douglass researcher, it's incredible to see all of his his notes, uh, 12 copies of a speech he gave, or drafts, I should say, with his original handwriting. Wow. They have that, and you can scan right through them free and open to the public. For people interested in, in American slavery and the coming of the Civil War in particular, uh, Edward Ayers is a story in A-Y-E-R-S. And he has, it's alternately called in the Valley of the Shadow right. and in the One presence of, the of my enemies. One of the first big history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But in which he looked at the archives of two communities and put he's put a lot of that online. So those sources can be really important as well. So I, I think those are the, the cases. And the last thing is to the extent that you have time to do a field trip, Local archives are there out there, and while I didn't mean to speak dismissively of them in my earlier comments about there being a few dozen great archives right. in this country, I've done a lot of research in local archives too, and especially if you have a research question you want to find out, specifically, you can find a lot of what you need in those archives. They're open often only twice a week from 2 to 4 in the afternoon, but right. you also can guarantee you'll be the only person in that archive most of the time, and you have full reign to take out what they have, so... Yeah, and it can be exciting if you're the sort who likes to poke around in archives. Yeah. I'll uh, agree with that. Well, uh, thanks so much for talking, and thanks, so, uh, more importantly, for doing this, uh, this great uh, work. Uh, uh, we'll have uh, uh, links to some of the uh, other resources and archives that you mentioned on the website as well, uh, of course, as uh, a link to Voices from the Archives. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity and for the, all the work that GLC is doing to support this research and, and share this news. I really do feel that the purpose of an archive, well, the purpose of an archive is to keep documents preserved and accessible, right. but for far too long, and, and you can actually, there's a strange exercise you can do, you can kind of trace through what historian trained who, uh, almost a lineage from U.B. Phillips, who he trained, then who that person trained, and down through generations. And there, I'm six degrees removed from U.B. Phillips in a sense, like that Kevin Bacon game. But the the point of that is that, regrettably, uh, not regrettably, but all those people have been essentially white men that I, uh, in that lineage from U.B. Phillips to myself. And I think getting the archive more accessible to anybody to, to use their own experiences, their own cultural knowledge to examine it, is incredibly valuable and really important work to keep going with. Well, thanks so much, Connor. It's great uh, having you here. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Slavery and Its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a 
part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Additional support is provided by the Rabina Foundation. Each episode is produced by Thomas Thurston and Daniel Vera with additional production support by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the Gilda Lehrman Center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.